There are many different ways that one can conceptualize class. It is a very important sociological idea. In this episode, I'll talk about two important thinkers in sociology, Karl Marx and Max Weber, and how they conceptualize class, and the differences between them. Before doing this, there's a third conceptualization of class, not Weberian or not Marxist, that I want to go over. This is the stratification approach to class. This is an account of class that is the general way that most of us sort of intrinsically understand it and relate to it and apply it to an analysis of an individual in their class position. The stratification approach is essentially concerned with describing a large set of individual attributes and conditions. So it's a combination of different characteristics. Class can be determined by one's access to healthcare, higher education, higher quality services, better housing, etc. This account is importantly gradual as opposed to relational. So the different set of attributes that define one's class are not necessarily oppositional. Better access to education, for instance, would be an important element of one's class, but better access to education does not necessarily mean that someone else is deprived of education as a result of that. It can, of course, mean that, but it's not a necessary relationship. This is a valid conceptualization of class, importantly. Like, the, the Great British Class Survey is an important large-scale sociological study that essentially uses this analysis, but it is importantly not a Marxist or a Weberian account of class. The next account that I'll talk about is the conception of class as defined by Max Weber. Now, this is contingent upon mechanisms of opportunity hoarding on the market. So what that essentially means is that this is an account of class entirely dependent upon market relationships. Market opportunities being how much money your labor has the capacity, the opportunity to make, how much your capital has the opportunity to make. So either making money through laboring or making money through, let's say, owning a factory. And the social elements of class for Weber are entirely related to which groups hoard these opportunities and have far better market opportunities and which groups have less opportunities. So there is a social closure of opportunities for some determined based upon market relationships that makes others necessarily have less opportunities. The way to think about this, Weber is of course a liberal capitalist. So the way of thinking about this in terms of Weber is that if I'm really good at making money, either through my labor or through the large amount of capital that I own, then that will make it harder for you to make money. Because of course the market is a competition. This is, importantly, a relational account of class. But, importantly, unlike Marx, it is not related to production, and instead to making money. So, of course, the third account of, of class that I'll talk about is the Marxist approach. Now, the Marxist approach is contingent upon mechanisms of exploitation and domination. So this is an account of class that is based upon production, specifically the use of social mechanisms related to production to exploit and dominate some, and give advantages to others. So this account of class, entirely based upon one's relationship to production. Are you laboring to produce capital for someone else? Or are you exploiting and dominating others, or participating in the exploitation and domination of others, so that you make capital through other people's labor? So again, the, the important difference here between Weber and Marx, of course, Marx, the Marxist approach is also relational and oppositional, is that Weber's account of class is entirely contingent upon the market, and the Marxist approach is entirely contingent upon production. 
one's relationship to production. So in this episode, I will of course expand upon Karl Marx's conception and Weber's conception of class. And one of the reasons I'm doing this, I think, is that it's very important to understand where one is getting their general sentiments as it relates to what class means and how they define class. Class as a sociological concept is very nuanced and precise. And I find that many of the general sort of vague accounts, even provided by people who um, say that they're Marxists, um, miss a lot of the important characteristics of class. And specifically the nuances between the different sort of main conceptualizations of class. This is, of course, not just some vague theoretical concept, but is very important to how one relates to their own position in the world. So this is an aspect of theory that is, I think, incredibly easy to apply to one's own life and relate one's own life to others. And, and therefore, I think that having a better conceptualization of it is very important. It's obviously perfectly fine to not read that much theory. That's perfectly reasonable. Doesn't make you a bad, you know, leftist or whatever. But if one is saying that they are a Marxist, let's say, and giving their political opinions online, you know, they should be expected to understand the Marxist conception of class, I think. And it's important to highlight here that I'm, Weber is the absolutely fine scholar to utilize, and his conception of class isn't necessarily bad, and as I will talk about later, elements of it are not necessarily antithetical to the Marxist project. To quote Eric Wright here, one can be a Weberian for the study of class mobility, a Bordeauxian for the study of class determinants of lifestyles, and a Marxian for the critique of capitalism. So you can synthesize a lot of these. Even the, the first class analysis of individual attributes that I won't talk about too much that is not relational. You can even incorporate that, of course, into, a, let's say, a Marxist account. I'll start mainly talking about Weber. Weber is, of course, a liberal capitalist who is, who is an important founder of the discipline of sociology. He is writing in conversation with Marx and viewing Marx as a sort of a challenge to capitalism. Think about, I mean, this is a dumb analogy, but if anyone's familiar with Kant's position on Hume, which is that Kant read Hume and was essentially like, the purpose of my philosophy now is to prove that Hume is wrong. We can think of it sort of like that. So there's a, there's a, there's a respect here and a com in conversation with Marx, but a fundamental rejection of Marx. So for Weber, importantly, um, there's more to social stratification or inequality in society than class. There are three important dimensions of a society that relate to what determines social stratification or inequality, and only one of those three is class. In, in the Marxist account, essentially all of these three, if you would translate them, are folded up into class. So, so Weber is not a class reductionist in the way that Marx is. So again, both Marx and Weber are analyzing the stratification of society. This is analyzing characteristics and elements of society that are far more relational. One has a thing that relates to stratification in virtue of others not having it. Marx, of course, says all stratification and inequality is fundamentally related to class, whereas again, Weber is saying that class is only an element of it. So the first dimension of stratification for Weber is status. This also is translated to estate. So the, the German word is stande, which I'm definitely pronouncing wrong. And there's an important misconception with Weber in relation to status that it just means social prestige. But again, the crossover between the word status and estate as a description should indicate that this is in reference to a more archaic form of social inequality than in uh, bourgeois capitalism. So status for Weber is 
more significant in societies where markets are less efficient or less relevant. So a slave-based economy of antiquity categorizes the slave and master as a status group. Status is essentially related to Weber's analysis of the landed aristocracy and um, their sort of waning influence as a result of uh, industrialization and capitalism. I'll get into this more, of course, later. The second element of stratification is, of course, class. Now, class for Weber is only related to your opportunities on the market. So essentially, your general life prospects as it relates to making money. This is how much money your labor has the ability to make and how much money your wealth has the ability to make. This is, of course, again, different from the Marxist conception because it relates first and foremost to the market. Again, Marx's analysis of class is not first and foremost concerned with the market. Exploitation and domination relate to production, one's relationship with production. The market is secondary from production. So class is different from status for Weber insofar as it is decided by the market and the market alone. And Weber, of course, being a liberal capitalist, thinks that the market acts rationally. So in a perfect market system for Weber, where status is the least relevant and class is the most, one's prospects on the market would only be determined by their ability to make money, so not at all by their social status. The third determinant of stratification for Weber is power. So essentially, you know, how much power one can exert. This also translates in some instances as party, as it's the only characteristic of an individual where mass action is actually possible. So Weber is in here rejecting that class can function in itself as a motivation for political action. Power is a product of either one's class position or their status. So the nobility acts to crush the peasantry, let's say, doing so as a result of their status accruing power. When workers strike, they are doing so because their class position accrues power. So the transition from uh, feudalism to capitalism for Weber and his analysis is essentially a transition from stratification mainly through status towards class. This relates to Weber tracking the move from traditional authority to legal rational authority. So again, class is a market situation for Weber. So the serf or slave position is not class, but status, or a lack of status. For Weber, the aristocracy has access to wealth, not as a product of the market, but instead a product of their social status. Whereas Marx would say that fundamentally the property relationship of you know, the land and who produces things on the land creates the social relationship that forms the aristocracy, Weber responds that it is the reverse. So one's relationship to the king accrues them property. So Weber and Marx have reversed conceptions of class or status in the feudal context. For Weber, you engage in a property relationship as a result of your status. You do not get status as a result of your engagement in a property relationship. In an ideal market system for Weber, you only get power not by status, but by being good at making money. So Weber has a trans-historical account of capitalism and sort of connects it to the idea of the market. So Weber writes that there's a primitive capitalism, I believe, or sort of an early archaic capitalism in like Roman antiquity, for instance, that was not able to be particularly influential as a result of the prominence of slavery. For Weber, the system was far less rational, and people's opportunities, if they were either a slave or a master, were not contingent upon how much money they could make, but by a social relationship of status. This also relates to Weber's idea of how inefficient a slave economy is. 
because the people who are calling the shots, so to speak, who engage in property and manage property are not being appointed as a result of their ability to make money. They aren't being appointed by their class. They're being appointed by their social status. This can also explain why there are many nobles in the feudal times, let's say, that were actually relatively poor, didn't have that much money, yet they still had their status. Again, relating to the sort of trans-historical account of capitalism that Weber has, although our Weber technically doesn't use the word capitalism. I mean, Marx technically doesn't either, but writes about a market system in which there is the spread or exchange of capital. So markets are economies where people primarily gain their ability to live based on the exchange of goods on the market. It's sort of circular definition, but you know what I mean. But in the class system, where class reigns over status, the only thing that determines your wealth or your prospects, according to Weber, are how much capital your labor can get you and how much capital your capital can get you. This is, in a certain way, similar to the Marxist conception, insofar as Weber concedes that property relations are incredibly important to one's class relationship. But again, Weber only says that this is the case in a fully market system. So pre-capitalist systems had markets, but they were far less significant, and social status was more important. But importantly, Weber does not view classes as having collective interests, first and foremost. An example we can think of this is, let's say like an 18-year-old who has a very rich father and gives them an estate that makes them $40,000 a year. Some sort of estate, some sort of capital that appreciates at a rate of $40,000 a year. In the Weberian account, based upon one's prospects on the market, in, in, in terms of class, they are not particularly upper class themselves. Now, of course, the primary thing they have going for them is their status, the, their social relationship that may give them access to, to further property relations. This is why, importantly, if you view class first and foremost related to market prospects, related to income, class consciousness is not technically possible. And so far as this you know, 18-year-old noble has no real similar interests to a, a laborer that makes $40,000 a year. This is, of course, not a critique of the idea of class consciousness, but to say that the Marxian conception of it relates to production. Marx would say that this person, this young noble, is making their money based upon capital, and class consciousness is built around labor power. So again, for Weber, class consciousness is not possible because everyone has different interests on the labor and capital market that cannot be permanently unified. Market prospects sometimes, you know, coincide, of course. There are many cases, of course, where market prospects of different individuals line up very intimately. So, you know, the example of workers striking, yet Weber thinks that many of these class antagonisms are a byproduct of status. The sort of pre-capitalist non-market system that is still in a certain context in effect. This is insofar as Usually for Weber, these are products of monopolies on the market still existing, where for Weber, monopolies are accrued by, by definition, not because of one's merit, but essentially because of one's status. So as a market becomes more influential for Weber, as it is rational, these monopolies, these status positions that define property relationships will become less important. So over time, Weber thinks that class antagonism gets less bad as opposed to, of course, Marx, who thinks it's the opposite. And in a certain sense, Weber was sort of right about that, about class antagonism, but 
for the wrong reasons, which we'll get into later. So basic notes from, from what I've been talking about so far is that Weber defines class through market prospects, which is far more similar to, let's say, defining class through an income bracket. If that is first and foremost the fundamental thing that defines class, then it is very hard to conceive of how different income brackets would necessarily be classes in themselves, would fundamentally define one's interests. Because again, as Weber points out, if that's what class is, let's say, then there are going to be many, many different instances in which class consciousness cannot be conceived of. There are vague and brief coalitions people may make, you know, workers in a factory. But overall, you can't fundamentally organize based off of a similar level of market prospects. You know, a Twitch debater, let's say, for Weber, has no meaningful social status, let's assume. Status, again, is not really like clout. Can't translate to something like online clout. This is sort of a misconception with Weber. Again, coming from the idea that status means general prestige or, you know, how, how well-liked someone is. Status is a particular important social esteem that accrues powers and privileges. Or, you know, the lack of status, the sort of the oppositional relationship that necessarily exists when someone has status is the lack of access for a particular group. The best example of this we can think of, again, noting that status also translates to estate is the, you know, tax exemptions that nobles had. Nobles were also able to become officers, etc., based purely on these aristocratic relationships. You can't think of, you know, Twitter followers do not, do not accrue you these special relationships. The only, the only example I can imagine is, like, there's this exclusive restaurant, I don't know if it's still in business, I hope it's not, in, like, LA, in which you can only get in if you have 40,000 followers, something like that. For the most part, you know, the main element of power that, let's say, a debate streamer has is their class relationship. I use this as an obvious example because this, there was a discourse going on related to this. Their, their class relationship relates to their prospects on the labor and capital market. If they're a particularly successful debate streamer, they have quite a solid amount of prospects in relation to that. What I, what I mean to say here is that it's, it's far easier to conceptualize them as upper class under the Weberian account than the Marxist account. A rich debate streamer is very good at making money, clearly. But if we define class in the Marxist way, which relates to one's relationship to production, is your labor exploited or are you exploiting labor because of your capital, because of your ownership of a factory, let's say? And, you know, if you look at a Twitch stream, there's no, there's no exploitation of labor there. So on emphasizing the relationship of production, a debate streamer is just a wealthy laborer. There is no domination or exploitation intrinsic in this process alone. Now, obviously, this is something that I guess we could talk about later. The, the particularly wealthy laborers, which are generally a product of, you know, global imperialism and the, the relationship of wealth from the global north to the global south, generally have more reactionary class interests. This is also because from your labor, you have a lot of capital. You can, let's say, invest that capital into becoming, let's say, petit bourgeois. Regardless, back to sort of Weber. Um, and the differences in status against class. So status groups still exist for Weber as remnants of the sort of pre-capitalist social formations where markets were far less crucial. This is, of course, status still exists for Weber in the context he's writing in. I'm sure he probably would have had 
uh, absolutely different predictions for the state of status in the 21st century than how status works on a Viberian account today. So status is any group that confers power to its members explicitly as a product of their participation or their relationship with, within it. Um, it's a non-market relationship that is prone to create monopolies on wealth not related to class, so not related to one's prospects of making money, their ability to make money, but instead based upon their status, their relationship to that group. So to a certain extent, politicians, even doctors, lawyers, are examples of status groups in the contemporary context. But, I mean, maybe minus politicians, these groups are far less influential than noble lords. While, while Weber is very quick to agree, let's say, that the primary determinant of class is property relations, which he does agree with Marx on that, that statement, he will say that in a feudal context, property relations were instead primarily determined by social status. Status groups are fundamentally limitations on the market. The market only cares about your labor or your capital. In, and in that sense, Weber is similar to Marx. Uh, but they both, of course, sort of get this idea from Adam Smith. But back to, sorry, back to property relations. One may be confused by this admission related to the importance of property relations in Weber, um, because let's say like a difference based on property ownership sort of just sounds like feudalism, right? Adam Smith viewed and understood the rentier class, which is a class based on property ownership, as a vestige of the feudal serf master system. Yet for Weber, Property relations can still be just a class difference if it is based upon property that is bought and sold on the market. So in feudalism, land ownership was a title given to one by social status. The question of, let's say, land being up for ownership based upon the market was not one that was typically answered. So Weber views the feudal system as not conferring, let's say, property relationships based on how good someone is at making money, but only based upon having a good relationship to the king. So this makes, for Weber, landlords a class difference that is related to the market. Another example of the significance of this um, concession, I guess I'll describe it, by Weber is uh, related to the ownership of the means of production. So whether one owns a factory or not has a very significant effect on their prospects on the market, obviously. Particular property relations on the market will lead to different classes exerting power based on their combined interests. He will nevertheless say that for the most part, this is a class relationship determined by the fact that the factory owner is very good at making money and a part of that skill is related to coercion. There is obviously no conception of labor exploitation in Weber. As a result of this, the workers in the factory have a collective interest to develop power based upon their class position and subsequently after developing that power, gain better prospects on the market. This is an instance where, where, let's say, a particular class group is operating similarly, that they will gain consciousness of a sort. Power, one of three sort of uh, determinants of social stratification for Weber, necessarily is accompanied with a collective identity. And the only instance in which class confers power for a group of people is when they have a collective sort of identity related to it. They recognize their collective common interests and attempt to change the relationships of property ownership to their collective benefit. The use of this collective interest by the workers is an example of an alteration of market prospects. The factory owner has less market prospects, of course, because they have to pay their workers more. Weber thinks that, in a certain sense, that's all fine and dandy. But he importantly 
disagrees with Marx on the tendency of class conflict to get worse over time. Weber thinks class conflict will be the worst at the beginning of capitalism, as status is more important and class is less important, as monopolies are more crucial and more determinant of the market, and as particular groups take advantage of those monopolies. And, according to Weber, as the market gets more rational, individual interests become far more relevant than collective interests. An important element of class is the non-social element, is just purely one's own prospects on the market. It's very important that this element of class has nothing to do with labor power or the ownership of capital. There is arguably a specter of exploitation in Weber's account of class that we can see is currently sort of haunting the discussion we're talking about. Even if Weber does concede there are these particular instances in which a class can become, or a section of a class can become conscious to exert and improve their collective uh, prospects on the labor market, as a result, primarily, I think, of his definition of class through individual prospects, these alliances are tenuous and situational. This is, again, a product of Weber rejecting the idea of labor exploitation in the Marxian sense. He says, the problem in relation to the workers striking is about opportunities on the market, not to those workers' labor being exploited. Now, of course, the workers gain a certain amount of power based upon how essential they are for the capitalist to make money. This potential power is probably a better way of, of viewing it. They get can sometimes be exercised when they look around and say, you know what, we should make a union. We should improve our labor prospects. But again, fundamentally, as I gave the example before of the young aristocrat who, let's say, makes the same amount of money technically as these laborers, there is no meaningful capacity for them to work together. Now on to more Marx. Um, as mentioned, Marx views class primarily as a property relation. In capitalism, this property relation is between who owns capital and who owns merely their labor power. So, who owns the factory and who merely owns their ability to work? Who has to go to the factory to produce value for the capital owners and subsequently only get a small portion of that value through wages? This process is exploitation. Exploitation involves, of course, a portion of the value produced by the worker's labor going to the capitalist. Importantly for Marx, exploitation is only possible as a result of domination, of one class dominating another. You can only exploit the proletariat's labor, you know, force them to labor in a particular way that benefits you as a result of their domination. Now importantly, domination and exploitation are different than exclusion. What I mean by this is, that domination and exploitation are continually recurring. They're structural activities of inequality that necessarily maintain class relationships. An example of exclusion would be like forcing taxi drivers out of business by creating a company like Uber. Now, domination and exploitation would be, let's say, to do that, force them out of business, and then make their living conditions worse and more unstable, make them more powerless, and then hire them as Uber drivers. So this is a process that is continually recurring. Domination is the tactics and methods of organization that force the laborer into the process of exploitation continually. If there wasn't domination, if the working class was not dominated, then they would not enter into these exploitative relationships. They would labor in a way in which they got all of the money from their labor. You can see how different the image of this is fundamentally immediately as a result of exploitation and the concept of exploitation. And the definition of class 
necessarily related to exploitation, one's labor versus capital. Uh, so a way of viewing an important difference with them for Marx and Weber is that Marx views both the activities and conditions of class as relational, where Weber only views the conditions of class as relational. The, the activities are not necessarily relational. For Weber, one can change their activities on the market to improve their prospects in a way that doesn't necessarily alter the activities of others. This is, again, because the market is very large. If we're defining class based purely on market relations, then it's harder to understand um, how, how exactly domination um, directly affects this. Marx thinks, of course, that class is an overarching historical phenomenon. Um, history can be understood through class conflict. It is the essential motor of history for Marx. To represent history outside of this is to get it wrong at some level. Weber, of course, only views class as a market capitalist phenomenon. So pre-capitalist stratification is primarily based on status, not class. Whereas, of course, the Marxist response to that is that in the feudal system, the aristocracy and their social relationships come out of a product of production, a product of property relationships. Who owns the land that other people till on? And the social relationships that come out of that upkeep the system. Marx also thinks class struggle gets more intense over time, so capitalism has a tendency to turn all social relations into either bourgeois or proletariat. Either you are making money based on someone else's labor as a result of your ownership of the means of production, of capital, or someone is making money off your labor. The, the craftsmen of pre-capitalism, for instance, who make a special product or service through skilled labor are consequently proletarianized by capitalism. They're forced to sell their labor for capital for another. This is why in the first international, craftsmen were so uh, present there, because they were actively becoming proletarianized. And Marx saw this development as inevitably leading to extreme stratification and a massive pool of semi-skilled laborers, proletariat, making up a majority of the population. So as capitalism expands, as market interests are more crucial, um, more people are proletarianized. This would mean that capitalism creates the very thing that would destroy it. As a majority of the world becomes a part of this proletarian pool, they all look to their left and their right and say, well, why do we labor for the capitalist? This doesn't make sense. We're far better off in a different property relationship in which these very few people don't own the means of production. Bourgeois and proletariat are, of course, not the only class relationship that has existed in history. So the feudal mode of production was a property relationship primarily between the aristocracy and the serf. So the, the primary class relationship in feudalism contingent on uh, the property relationships of arable land. Who owns the land? Who tills on the land? Who benefits from this? The peasant must work on the land owned by the aristocracy, pay rent to them for using it through the resources they produce. So again, class is the engine of history. As seen in the sort of the French Revolution, which is a sort of early bourgeois revolution, Marx writes that the bourgeois class is the most revolutionary of all history. He predicts the proletarian class to be uh, more revolutionary, although we'll see if he's right about that. The bourgeois class comes out of the class antagonisms of the serfs and the aristocracy. They were an upwardly mobile group of serfs, generally, who began to make money not off of an aristocratic rent system, the, the, the feudal mode of production, the feudal relationship of production, but instead making money off of wages. 
So organizing factories, organizing the labor of others to make it most profitable. Class conflict is so crucial for Marx for historical developments because the incoherencies of the feudal mode of production produce the new mode of production, produce the bourgeois class. The bourgeois class fight against the aristocratic privileges, as seen during the French Revolution. A lot of these privileges literally just relate to the fact that the aristocratic class are the ones who own the land. One of the things that the bourgeois class were fighting against was the inefficiencies in the feudal mode of production. The, the feudal relationship doesn't make that much money. It doesn't maximize production. The capitalist class gained their capacity to overthrow the aristocracy because they were better at producing things. It was a more efficient relationship of production. The wage system, making money not based upon rent, but based upon wages, is far more efficient. So it's important to note, because I saw this as a criticism um, when, when looking up more of the sort of general conceptions of, of Marxian class, that the bourgeois revolution, and you know the revolution, if you can even call it that, of the, let's say, the new aristocracy over the antique or the ancient mode of production, is not the underclass overthrowing the overclass, the upper class. It is a portion of this underclass and a group of people produced as a result of the inconsistencies within uh, this mode of production taking over the upper class's spot. Now, the fundamental difference between the proletarian revolution for Marx and the bourgeois one is that the proletariat would be together rising up and overthrowing the bourgeois. This would result in for Marx, the destruction of class. Now, if the serfs collectively rose up and destroyed the aristocracy, this would also abolish class. But Marx did not think that the serfs had the capacity to do this. He did not view them as a revolutionary class. Marx, of course, writes of other classes in the contemporary context than just bourgeois and proletariat, or contemporary in his context. But Marx thinks in capitalism that these classes decay and are either reduced to bourgeois or proletariat. Just to, to quote from the Communist Manifesto, of all the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeois today, the proletariat alone is a genuinely revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artist, and the peasant, all of these fight against the bourgeois to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary but conservative. Nay, they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the wheel of history. If, by chance, they are revolutionary, they are only so in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. So, essentially, the artisan, the, the shopkeeper, uh, the craftsman, I guess that's the, that's the artisan, that's the same word, the peasant, want to roll back relationships, to go back to the feudal relationship as a way of resisting becoming proletarianized becoming sort of swept into this all-encompassing system in which their general position will be one of having their labor exploited for the capital and the benefit of others. So this highlights, again, this general tendency in capitalism that Marx expects. And this tendency is only conceptualized under a relationship of production. It does not relate to how much money someone makes. But fundamentally, it creates a disparity of income, but that is not the primary mode of analysis which makes it important to highlight how the Weberian account or elements of it and the Marxist accounts and even the sort of social stratification account, the first one I talked about, are not necessarily antithetical or elements. That'll conclude the free episode. 
for this. If you would like to see the end of this discussion, it's on my Patreon for $2 a month on patreon.com slash liveagar. If you would like to get a preview into uh, the episodes I'm working on uh, in the future, I give generally weekly updates um, on my Patreon as well for $5 a month. And uh, thank you to Please Don't Fire Us and Sierra for supporting me on Patreon. That's the, the $20 tier. I will obviously jet you out at the end of the uh, main episode. And yeah, thank you for listening.